Oh, wow. I didn't know this part of your story. So what happened with your son? Well, a lot of similar things, going to doctors, getting tests. He, what, with him, what ended up happening is he developed an autoimmune condition. So he tested allergic to absolutely everything. Yeah. This as a result of the antibiotic? Yes, as a result of the drug injury. Because before that, he was a normal boy going to school, running and playing, you know. And next thing we know, he's like in a wheelchair, can't get up. And he's, in, he's literally crying out in pain. Every few minutes, just crying out in pain. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Until I started doing this podcast, I was mostly ignorant to the extent of the harm sometimes caused by psychiatric and antibiotic medications. In spite of my own two-week experience with disabling withdrawal symptoms from an antidepressant 20 years ago, and contemporary reports of withdrawal symptoms from friends and clients, I still had no idea how pervasive and sometimes permanent these brain injuries were. As frightening as that was to learn, the prescriptions for psychiatric medications for depression and anxiety have soared during the COVID pandemic. And let's face it, folks, we are still in the early stages of the pandemic. If we get blue skies with double rainbows, we may have a vaccine in 18 months, but that's really wishful thinking. The global economy has taken an unprecedented hit. And that means many people's jobs and financial security are going to be at further risk. It is normal to feel anxious about how the world is suddenly changing in so many ways. Learning coping skills, having strategies to feel more safe in an unknown future, and using supportive relationships are natural ways to feel better about feeling anxious. In this episode, we hear what happened to Jocelyn Peterson after taking a benzodiazepine for less than a week. Jocelyn was so physically sick from the benzo brain injury, she had to spend much of the time horizontal on the floor with her baby while her neighbors helped with the household chores. Jocelyn's body was a complete mess. She couldn't sleep, eat, watch TV, read, her bowels were dysfunctional, and she was losing weight fast. That's just the start of Jocelyn's journey with benzodiazepine medications. A medication journey, as Jocelyn herself describes, that goes through madness. Jocelyn's healthcare experience is a textbook example of how the medical system pushes psychiatric medications without understanding how the meds can cause brain injury. This often leads to doctors denying side effects or withdrawal symptoms, effectively gaslighting the patient, psychologizing their physical symptoms, and pathologizing their human emotions. It was a long, arduous road for Jocelyn to get back to her usual high-functioning self. And along the way, she started sharing her experiences and what she learned. And now Jocelyn has a large following on social media, 
On her YouTube channel, Benzo Brains, Jocelyn shares real-world information about benzodiazepines and strategies on successfully managing the withdrawal symptoms. Jocelyn has written a memoir about her experiences with benzos and the healthcare system called Seeds of Hope, a journey through medication and madness toward meaning. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or any of the podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. If you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Jocelyn Peterson, and a word of warning, as always, that some folks may be triggered by Jocelyn's experiences with the healthcare system. Thanks, Jocelyn. Yeah. And uh, where did you grow up, and what was your childhood like? Um, so my childhood um, was, you know, a mixture of bad and good things. Um, so I grew up in Pueblo, Colorado, which is southeastern, um, and it kind of kind of a small town. Um, and I grew up, so I grew up dealing with some mental and physical abuse. But at the time, I didn't really know that's what I was dealing with. That was just my childhood, so that was my normal. And, um, but I also grew up with a, a lot of spiritual support and like a, a community uh, at church. Uh, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And um, that, that, that was a big part of really what stabilized me and helped me to overcome a lot of those things in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and then after that, I uh, ended up getting a scholarship to Brigham Young University. So I moved out to Utah and went to college, which was just fantastic. I, I absolutely loved college. And um, I graduated with a BS in education. Um, and okay. So childhood on the one hand, there was um, some abuse at home, but you found solace and support in the community of the church. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And then it all sort of sounds like going off to college was a way to escape the home life. Uh, yeah, it definitely was. I, I wanted nothing more than to just get away, not just from my home life, but just sort of a lot of things that I, I grew up around and, and get away and really restart my life in a lot of ways. And so did you say you got a BS in education? Mm-hmm. Bachelor's of Science. Yeah. Oh, Bachelor's of Science. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what did you do with that teaching degree? Um, well, after I got married and my husband graduated, I put him through like his last year and a half of college. We moved out to North Carolina and I started teaching out there. I also got pregnant out there with my first baby. Uh, and then uh, he passed away. And so we uh, decided to move uh, back out west because my husband's family was in Las Vegas. That's where he grew up. And my family had recently moved to Colorado. So <clears throat> we thought, well, let's just be a little closer to family because, you know, if something else traumatic happens, it's really hard to be that far away from everyone. Uh, so we ended up moving back to Utah, and I got a position teaching at a local elementary school. And I did that for uh, about, well, almost two years before I got pregnant again. And, um, and I write about all of this, too, in my book. Uh, I have a memoir coming out June 1st. It's uh, called Seas of Hope, uh, A Journey Through Medication and Madness Toward Meaning. So anyway, yeah, I, I so after I had uh, my son, I, I quit teaching to be a stay-at-home mom, 
and then a couple of years later, I had my daughter. So. Okay. So yeah, we're going to talk about uh, your journey in the healthcare system. When did uh, the journey that you account for in the book, the, the, the not so good parts of the healthcare system, when did that journey start and how come it started? I mean, really, in a lot of ways, that all started from the day I was born, literally. I just seemed to have bad karma with doctors. And having a father who was a chiropractor, I grew up with a, a healthy distrust of Western medicine. Not to say that I didn't ever, you know, participate in it, but there were just a lot of little things. But really, my story uh, starts with when I sought out a sleeping pill to help me. Um, so this was after I actually had my daughter and she had been in the hospital uh, with meningitis. So she was like two months old. We'd been in the hospital for weeks and, and I hadn't really been sleeping. And then right when we got home, uh, my son ended up going into the hospital <laughs> twice. So it was just like, so I was waiting up at nights for my husband to bring him back or whatever. And I just was not sleeping. Um, and obviously there were a lot of other things going on at the time. The economy was bad. <laughs> you know, my husband was out of work because he was in construction and that just went, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so things were tight. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I, I, I know I have what it takes to raise this toddler and this newborn and be resourceful when things are tight, but I just, I need my sleep. I, I can't do it without sleep. Uh, so I went into the doctor and he prescribed me Ambien. And I was kind of familiar with that. My mom had taken it and uh, had offered it to me a, a couple of times. And he assured me that it, it wouldn't get through my breast milk into the baby. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm just going to do this temporarily. And I just thought to myself, um, I mean, I don't like taking medications. I had spent uh, the past few years working really hard on my gut health and um, just healing using natural remedies and, and therapies and things like that. But I thought, well, I'm just going to do this temporarily to reset my, my sleep cycle and then I'll get off of it. Right. Um, so I, I started taking the Ambien and just a couple of days into it, I could tell that my daughter was totally being affected by this drug. I didn't care what the doctor said. She was sleeping all the time and that was not like her, even after meningitis. That's, that's not how she was. And so I really struggled with it because I, I wanted to get a little more sleep. But after probably about five or six days taking the Ambien, I cold turkeyed off of it because I didn't want to hurt my baby. And that's when, that's when everything just really hit the fan. I, I had no idea what was going on with me, um, but I was really not sleeping. I mean, I wasn't sleeping before, but it was like, the insomnia just was worse it, I, and I had ringing in my ears and, and I was rapidly losing weight and I was just running to the bathroom all the time and I, you know, I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't even like read a book without my nervous system just going haywire. I couldn't watch TV, I, I mean, and I was in so much pain all of a sudden. I couldn't even go for walks because the pain was so bad. Um, so, you know, my husband started helping me get into various practitioners to get different tests done. Um, I mean, I had every test imaginable done. I had an EKG, right? I had a, a scan of an MRI. I had a CT of my pelvis because that was so painful. I had my eyes checked out because I couldn't see straight. I mean, I was, I was actually kind of hoping I had a tumor in my brain um, because all these tests were coming back negative and there was no explanation for what the heck was going on with me, uh, except for, oh, you have postpartum depression or you're having a nervous breakdown, you know, <laughs> you have anxiety. And I'm like, I don't think so because I mean, I lost my first baby. I mean, that is depression. If you, <laughs> I mean, if, you, if your parent has lost a child, you know what depression is. This wasn't that. There was something else going on. It, it was physical and I knew that, but the only thing that they had to offer me really was psych meds. Um, so after about four months of people's charity wearing thin and patients wearing thin with me, just lying around literally all day on the floor with my baby and neighbors helping out with my son and stuff. So yeah, you're lying around on the floor. So you're quite disabled if you're hanging around on the floor. <laughs> yeah, 
especially me, because I was the kind of person who would just go, 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 go. I'd go for four mile runs and, and do yoga and come home, do push-ups or, you know, whatever. I just had so much energy and was really honestly the picture of perfect health before all of this. I had a perfectly healthy pregnancy, really. I, I did hypnobirthing, even though I'd had a C-section with my second baby. Um, I, had, I had delivered her totally naturally. And there was, there was nothing that said, oh, this girl isn't like healthy in any way. So <laughs> else to do anymore. Um, and I was suicidal. I was getting these suicidal thoughts, which I've never had before in my life. So I, I went into the doctor and, and they had me take a little test, you know, are you feeling this? Are you feeling that? Are you feeling that? And I'm marking everything off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like 10 on everything. And so they said, okay, you have major depressive disorder and anxiety disorder. And, uh, you know, here's Effexor and here's Advan to take until the Effexor kicks in. And there you go. So I went home. And I think I, I went up to my parents' house because my, my husband was out of town. And after I had started the medication and, and that day or the day before, and I just remember lying down on my parents' couch and falling asleep for the first time in like four months. And I thought, oh my gosh, they, these meds are working. Yeah, they must be right, you know? Um, but what I didn't realize at the time is that the Advan they had given me is very similar. It's almost the same drug really as the Ambien. So what that had done is it really stabilized the, the syndrome, the, the injury that, that the Ambien caused. And so I was able to calm down, you know, enough to, to sleep and, 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 but I still wasn't wonderful until about a month later, I went back into my doctor and they had told me to get off the Ativan because he said, oh, you know, you don't want to stand that too long. But he said, you know, you're still not doing great. Um, let's, let's just up the Ativan to two milligrams. And it was like magic. It's like, boom, all of a sudden I could sleep, I could function, I could be my old self again. I was still in like a lot of pain. Um, so then he switched me to Cymbalta for the pain, <laughs> uh, for the fibromyalgia that I was then diagnosed with. But for the most part, I could live a normal life after that. So I was a believer. I thought, oh, I really must have needed these meds. You know, <laughs> they're working. Okay, so at this point, he's got you on um, an antidepressant, an anti-anxiety, and an anti-pain? Well, no, I got off the Effexor, which is an SNRI, and he switched me to another SNRI, which is Cymbalta. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so Cymbalta has dual purpose, antidepressant mm -hmm. and anti-pain. Mm -hmm. It's used for pain management frequently. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're not that it works, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so you're chucking along thinking these pills are making your life great. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I never liked the idea of being on an antidepressant. Again, I had learned a lot of things and studied natural medicine and I thought these you know, these aren't a good idea. I didn't know anything about the Ativan other than what I sort of looked up online when I started taking it. Um, but I, I never liked the idea that I always wanted to get off of it. It was making me put on weight. I was always like really super skinny, <laughs> even after three babies. Um, but my doctor kept saying, don't get off of that. Don't get off until you get off of the Ativan. So I would try and cut the Ativan or lorazepam actually. Um, and every time I would just try and cut a little bit off of it, I would just be so awful. Like I couldn't sleep. And I didn't realize at the time that really what I was experiencing was like severe anxiety and, and these symptoms, but I thought it was just from sleep deprivation. And I thought, well, I can't function like this. So then I would get back on. And so I ended up staying on everything for about like three years. And finally I was, I, I was sick of this in Balta. It wasn't, I didn't feel like it was helping anyway. Um, and so I initially went through this tapering process and it's kind of a long story. I got on progesterone. I didn't know what I was doing. And then I accidentally cold turkeyed the progesterone and I got so bad. And I thought, oh my gosh, okay, I'm going to get back on the Cymbalta, even though I was doing really well tapering it. I got back on and then I got even worse and my blood pressure skyrocketed and I got up to like third trimester pregnancy weight and I was falling asleep in the middle of the day on my bed and I, I was just so bad and I thought oh forget this so I just cold turkeyed it and that's that was my first experience really with just full-on like 
crazy. <laughs> I was shaking all the time. I looked like somebody probably going through alcohol withdrawals. I didn't know what was going on with me. It was just, I couldn't function, even though I was still sleeping because I was taking the lorazepam every night. Uh, I was not doing well. Um, so but, the shaking, yeah. is that known as akathasia? Yeah, well, what I had at that time, I don't believe was akathisia. What I learned later, after I started um, healing my brain, really, by doing this cognitive behavioral therapy program and just like rewiring my brain, um, is I, I realized that it had to do with my blood sugar, that the Cymbalta had really messed with my blood sugar, which made sense. That's why I, I put on so much weight. Um, so I started being really careful with carbs and, and to not spike my blood sugar and things like that. And that eventually healed and went away. And I was doing great. I was doing better than ever getting off the Cymbalta. Um, but I was still on the lorazepam at night. And my husband and I really wanted to have another baby. And I knew that the literature at the time said that, um, that lorazepam can cause birth defects and things. Um, so, uh, you know, we decided to go ahead and get pregnant. And I thought, well, you know, okay, I know getting off the Ambien before was really bad, and, but I'm gonna taper it this time. And, you know, and maybe I'll, we'll just plan that I'm just gonna have to convalesce for a few months. It's gonna be hard, I'm not gonna sleep. But, you know, I don't have to be super mom during that time. And, and uh, yeah, anyway, just the way things kind of worked out, we got pregnant and, uh, and my, and then I was still wasn't, I wasn't off the lorazepam yet. And my doctor was like, you have to get off right now. You know, <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, okay. And actually, since then, we've learned it doesn't really cause birth defects. It can cause uh, what are called spontaneous abortions or miscarriages. Um, and working with the people that I've worked, and I've worked with like, I've interacted with hundreds, thousands of people really. A, a lot of women who become pregnant on, on a benzodiazepine, um, they, they do much better if they just taper slowly. Uh, there tends to be a lot more miscarriages with those who, who try to get off too fast because it's just way too much for the body to handle. Um, so I started trying to cut it by like an eighth of a milligram. My doctor wanted me to cut it by a fourth of a milligram and I knew that wasn't a possibility. So I started cutting and it was just everything that I had experienced in cold turkey and Ambien, it was every bit as bad, just from cutting an eighth of a milligram. Sort of painted yeah. a picture of how bad that got. I mean, I couldn't, well, I, could, I was still sleeping because I was still taking some at night, but I wasn't sleeping a lot. Again, just the pain, I didn't even recognize it as anxiety or fear because it was so bad. I was, I was basically just totally incapacitated again. It, it, it was difficult to take a shower. I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't read. I was sleeping a little bit every night because I was still taking a majority of the lorazepam. Um, but I, again, was rapidly losing weight. Um, and just this, this fear or this anxiety that I didn't even know was fear or anxiety. And I had, I had worked on that, you know, with, uh, the Symphalta, but this was just, this was uh, on a whole other dimension. <laughs> I didn't even know what was going on with my mind and body. Um, but it was, it was just torture, absolute torture. And then I had to cut again, you know, and then I had to cut again. And I hadn't even cut my medication in half by the time that I was just ready to give up. I thought I was going to have to kill myself or something because I just, I couldn't handle the torture, the day and night unending torture I was experiencing. Wow. So it was really unbearable. It, it was. And uh, luckily, my husband um, got online, started doing some research for me because I couldn't do it myself. And we, he found... Um, I think he found benzobuddies.org. And then he, he I think he also found benzo.org.uk, which is the site for the Ashton manual, which is what a lot of people use as a reference for withdrawing and things like that. Um, and we realized, okay, I'm not crazy. There's a lot of people who experience this and it's probably because I'm tapering too fast. Yeah, cutting an eighth of, of a milligram every week or every other week was way too fast for me. And the Ativan has a short half-life, you know, and so I was experiencing what I call these drops 
throughout the day, just the, where all of a sudden my symptoms, I would just go, oh, and my symptoms would get worse. And then a few hours later, boom, and my symptoms would get even worse. And then, oh, you know, and then finally until bedtime when I could take that dose and then get some relief. And I realized that that's because of the short half-life. So that, you know, told me that maybe I might need to switch over to a longer acting benzodiazepine to complete my taper. And so during this period, while you're struggling to cut down, how's the support from your doctor? Um, I mean, I, I was so sick, I couldn't even really go into the doctor at that time. Uh, and yeah, so I, where the next time I ended up going back into the doctor actually is when I thought I might be having a miscarriage. So I, I ended up in the ER. And that's when my husband showed the doctor the Ashton manual and all this information. And we requested that he prescribe me an equivalent amount of Valium at, to help stabilize me. And he was really reluctant to do that. You know, he didn't want to be prescribing an ER patient Valium. And he's like, well, but it can hurt the baby. And I'm like, well, I'm already taking poison anyway. So what does it matter if I take that poison or this poison? So he finally agreed and uh, I went, we went that day and, and filled out a prescription and we weren't, he wasn't positive that I was having carriage yet. So he, he wanted me to follow up with my doctor. But um, so then I, I started on the Valium and I did experience quite a bit of relief with that because of the longer half-life. Um, I was still in hell, <laughs> but um but it was more stable at least. I, and I didn't feel like I was going to have to take my own life. Um, because of the, the severity of what I was experiencing. So, yeah. Wow, so that must have been very frightening for not only yourself, but for your husband and your family, for you to be so disabled, cognitively impaired, feeling suicidal, yeah. Yeah. little kids running around that need you. Yeah, and I think what was really disturbing about it is they had kind of seen that before, right? I had, I had gone through this three and a half years earlier with Ambien. And so I think it was really hard for my husband to determine, well, is she, is she crazy? Like, is this another one of these things or is it really the meds? But hearing the testimonials of other people who had gone through this and reading the Ashton Manual and that information, it really helped me to understand, no, this really is a drug injury. Um, you know, I'd had one years earlier and I was misdiagnosed with, with anxiety and depression so they gave me more of the same poison and so i was poisoned for another three and a half years so yeah it's going to be that much exponentially worse at this point right so it sounds like when you got a hold of the ashton manual and saw the testimonials of other folks that that's when you made the connection that your what you experienced coming off ambien was withdrawal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean I really honestly had no idea at the time. My doctor didn't either. Honestly, my doctor is a, a friend of the family, so we've known him for years. He knew me. Um, we, we just didn't make that connection. He had no idea. That information wasn't really out there at the time, <laughs> to be honest. So. Right. Yeah. Okay, so you thought you were having a miscarriage, managed to get some Valium, which helped relieve the symptoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and then how did things go? Well, you know, I did end up having a miscarriage and, um, and I was really grateful for that actually in a lot of ways, because I was, I was thinking that maybe the pregnancy had a lot to do with it. And, and there was honestly no way I could have raised a baby at that time. Um, and so, so I went through that. I, I, I spent several weeks, about a month on the Valium, just trying to stabilize out and I, I didn't really get a lot better. And so at that point I thought, okay, well, I guess it's just time to taper, to bite the bullet and taper. There was really no going back at that point. You know, if I could have stayed on the Ambien or the Ativan forever and, and lived my life that way pain-free, I would have, but at that point I was just, the injury was, the, the bandage had been ripped off, the wound was exposed and I just had to get off of it. Uh, so I began a, a taper, a slow taper. I tried various versions, like I tried the, um, to get a version of Valium that was liquid and that wasn't good. So I ended up doing a method that I teach on my YouTube channel, which is water titration, where you basically create your own suspension using water. And that's what worked for me. 
Um, I learned that in some online Facebook support groups, and I had a lot of really great support there and guidance, and it really got me through all of it. So you really had to take your health into your own hands and do your own research, uh, sort of informal research, not through the formal medical system. Oh, yeah. Not that I didn't reach out. I mean, I have an entire chapter in my book called Physician Heal Thyself, where I kind of go over different experiences I had just trying to find a doctor, just any doctor who could help me with this taper and who, who had some advice and some knowledge about this. And they all thought they did, <laughs> you know, but none of them did. And, and none of them had read the Ashton Manual. And, and when you would bring it up, they would just, I remember I had one doctor tell me, oh, that's pseudoscience. And, you know, just go to, just go to pain clinic or go to a detox clinic. And I'm like, uh, I actually called a detox clinic. They said they couldn't help me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and one doctor told me I just couldn't handle being a mom and take some Prozac. Uh, you know. Of course, of yeah. course. And so how many of those doctors would you say were actually open when you came in with the Ashton protocol and all of that information? Oh, I mean, the only doctor who was at all reasonable, to be honest, was my physician, who I kept going to. Um, he was an osteopath and he knew me, he knew I wasn't an addict. And so he was willing to prescribe me the Valium. That was about all he's willing to do. He was willing to let me take charge of my own taper and not really interfere with it. But he was gone a lot, unfortunately. And so when he'd be gone on vacation or whatever, and I'd have to go see one of the other uh, providers at this clinic, I mean, I just get, I just get the third degree every time. Do you have a family history of addiction? Do you have a family history of mental illness? Do you? It's like, no, I am tapering off of my medication. This is not difficult to comprehend, you know. So, how long did it take uh, for you to get down to zero? I spent about a year and a half tapering off of what at the time was 13 milligrams of Valium. Um, which was less than the two milligrams of the lorazepam that I had been prescribed equivalency wise. So that just shows you how potent these drugs are. I mean, these newer benzodiazepines like Ativan and Klonopin and Xanax are 10 to 20 times more potent than Valium. And yet it's the Valium that the doctors are reticent to prescribe. You know, it's just so like, uh, do you guys even understand these drugs at all? Like <laughs> you're prescribing Xanax, which is like, 20 times more powerful. Wow, so. that's frightening. When you got off of the meds, how did you manage the pain, the anxiety, and any depression during all of that tapering? A lot of it was just acceptance, you know, just learning to accept where I was and a, a disability, a brain injury that I really had. Uh, I had help for a little bit. Um, we had, during that summer, when I be, we did hire a, a good friend of mine just to come and help out with the kids during the day, uh, or at least part of the day until my husband got home. After that, when school started, my son was back in school, but my daughter was still in, in she was only starting like preschool a few days a week. Um, so my mother-in-law actually suggested to me that I reach out to people in my neighborhood, in my community here. Again, we're a very close-knit community because we're all members of the same church. So um, I texted all of these other stay-at-home moms and said, look, I, I don't want to have to put my daughter in daycare all day. <laughs> I want to be with her, but I know I can't, I can't do this all day long and then be there for my son when he gets home until my husband gets home from work. I just need a few hours every afternoon to just lay down and, and desense, you know, <laughs> like sensory overload. I had a family lined up every single day of the week to take care of my daughter for me. Um, and I had people willing to drive my son to and from school for me. And I, yeah, I can't even imagine how I would have gone through all of this without that kind of community support. Wow. And of course, my husband <laughs> was amazing. <laughs> He's yeah. working like two jobs at the time, taking care of a disabled wife and kids. And oh my goodness, you know. Wow. Well, it's hard for me, having chatted with you now for a while, to picture you being so sick that you were, you know, not very functional at all and needed so much support. So when did 
uh, things start to go in the other direction where you found, okay, I need less support now. Well, I mean, there was a, a lot of healing that did take place as I tapered slowly, slowly. But I definitely was still having a lot of difficulty and very disabled. Really, the turning point for me was finding a functional medicine doctor, an ND, um, in my area here, who actually kind of understood this and, and understood how to help me. And he prescribed me sort of this gut reset diet to help with this benzo belly that you get where you're all distended and hard and it's, it's really painful. He prescribed, he said, you're, oh my gosh, you're dehydrated and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're iron is low, your blood sugar, you know, and, and the tests that functional medicine doctors do is very different from allopathic doctors from traditional medicine. So he was able to really pinpoint a lot of things specifically with nutrition and things to help me out. So he put me on this high protein diet again to help because apparently I had developed severe hypoglycemia and just other things. And uh, after uh, about a week or two doing his diet and taking these supplements and things to balance out my hormones, I started just really improving like unbelievably. And I started sleeping great seven to eight hours a night and just doing incredibly well. Um, even to the point where I tried out for a musical and was going to practices every week for this musical. Um, and, but then unfortunately, of course, you know, life right during that time, my son was prescribed an antibiotic, which severely injured him like that. And so now all of a sudden it was like deja vu. I'm dealing with a son with a drug injury and nobody believes us, you know? Oh, wow. I didn't know this part of your story. So what happened with your son? Well, a lot of similar things, going to doctors, getting tests. He, what, with him, what ended up happening is he developed an autoimmune condition. So he tested allergic to absolutely everything. To, and is, to the point where, yeah. This as a result of the antibiotic? Yes, as a result of the drug injury. Because before that, he was a normal boy going to school, running and playing, you know. And next thing we know, he's like in a wheelchair, can't get up. And he's, in, he's literally crying out in pain every few minutes, just crying out in pain and, and nothing helps. We're going to just all these dogs, the pediatric allergist, you know, supposedly the best in the area. He's just like, he's always had this, you know, you don't just suddenly develop this. And I'm like, oh, it was just, again, a lot of the same thing. So we ended up taking him to my functional medicine doctor. He was able to help pinpoint things a little better, at least to help reduce some of the allergic re reactions and, and inflammation and kind of get him back on track and it's still the journey we're still figuring it out you know he's still and he's got a lot of trauma from it to be honest from that and having a mom who was totally disabled twice in his life um you know so then yeah we we we've gone through a lot with him the past few years as well so my health kind of deteriorated at that point that trauma i think really um didn't help. And so I've had to learn a lot of other ways to take charge of my own health, again, to not give that power away to these authority figures and to really heal myself, you know? Yeah. So what are some of those strategies that you use to do that? Um, just, uh, so I, I've recently implemented a lot of Kundalini yoga and meditation and just finding my own diet and things that, that work for me and supplements. And, you know, I have gone and gotten some stem cell therapy down in Mexico because I had developed such severe trigeminal neuralgia. It was really disabling. So um, for folks who aren't familiar with that term, what is trigeminal mm -hmm. myalgia? It's, it's like a nerve damage, it's nerve pain. And so it's kind of like in this area all your around jaw. here. And it wouldn't go away and it literally hurt to breathe because air passing through my mouth was so sensitive it hurt. So, yeah, started working on that, and um, I'm still learning. But and so off to Mexico for stem cell therapy for the trigeminal, and how effective was that? Oh, very. It's very, very helpful. Um, but you go back about every four months or so because you feel it starting to come back, and uh, and they do various other treatments and things there too, and, and homeopathy and things. But it, it's been extremely helpful for pain. I would totally recommend that for anything. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Wow. See, 
to really get the health care you need, you have to go to Mexico a lot. You have to see a functional medicine doctor who's sort of outside, you know, traditional medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, the doctors, I mean, how can somebody help you if they don't even believe you? And then they just simply don't have the the technology to measure that or, you know, so they just, they, the doctors really just honestly have no understanding. And there are some doctors who are open and they're willing to read the Ashton manual. And I've definitely seen that. And that's great. Um, but there are plenty there who are just like, nope. So at what point did you move from looking after just yourself and healing just yourself to wanting to share what you've learned and help others? Well, Throughout my taper, I had at one point I had been asked to be a moderator in an online support group. And so I was already kind of used to guiding people to the resources and the information that they needed. So after I became a moderator, then I had a friend who wanted to start another group, which was focused more on helping people who wanted maybe to file um, for disability or or file a, a medical malpractice suit against their doctors, or just in various ways to correct stories that were incorrect, really, that reflected this problem or about these information on these drugs incorrectly. And I realized that, you know, we really need some weight behind us, behind the things that we're saying. We're just a bunch of sick patients. I asked her if she wanted to start a nonprofit with me. <laughs> and uh, so we got together with another group leader from another benzodiazepine support group and we started the benzodiazepine information coalition but then honestly like like right after that is when my son got sick and so i really had to step back from that and focus on my healing and and taking care of him and homeschooling him because he couldn't go to school um but i but before that, actually, I had started a YouTube channel. It was after, it was right at the end, I think, of my taper. And I made my first YouTube video. And really, I just made it for the people in my support group and maybe anybody else who might find it. I thought, oh, wouldn't that be cool if one day we get like a thousand views or something? But people really loved that video and they started sharing it. And then after my experience with all these doctors and just kind of that rage I was feeling at, you know, their their willful almost misunderstanding of what I'm trying to tell them. I made another video soon after which got picked up by Matt in America and um, after that I don't know I just kind of I started making YouTube videos and, and trying to educate really educate people in a way that they could with their brain injuries share that with loved ones and their physicians in a way that they could understand and maybe get the support that they needed. Which I know so many of us don't get through this. What's the name of your YouTube channel? It's called Benzo Brains. Benzo Brains, you just type it in, all one word. Should be pretty easy to find. It pops up. Okay. And so, how are you functioning now? What's your level of pain? How's your anxiety? Oh, I'm doing really well. Um, I mean, just I'm living life fully at this point. And there are things that pop up. If I get stressed out, I guess I get stressed out more easily. I guess I would say, you know, physically, if there's something coming up, I I really have to be mindful and, and keep my body calm and and you know support myself nutritionally or or whatever because my body's kind of delicate now. My whole system's delicate. But I'm I'm really happy. I'm I'm most days I just live with just total peace and joy. I really do. Um, you know, there are some times where this kind of, if I don't sleep enough or certain things happen or I don't eat right, this kind of dark blanket kind of comes over my brain and it's really frustrating. Um, but I know it's just temporary and, and that'll ease up. And so far the neuralgia's clearing up. So um, you know, there, there are leftovers and I, uh, sometimes I don't know what's just being 42 years old versus being 32 <laughs> when these things started. I don't know. Um, but, but honestly, life is really good. Life is good. I, it's painful having a son who's still suffering. No, no parent wants that, but I'm not, I don't feel like I'm coming from a place of fear in dealing with that, you know? So. Such a contrast to how sick you were, where life was too much suffering to want to live for. 
Yeah. And I really truly believe that a lot of that suicidality that people experience with withdrawal from these drugs, I just, that's not coming from you. I mean, I, I never would have thought those things, but whatever these drugs do to you, they, they, they twist your brain in a way, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just the suffering that was too much. It was just that the idea was there constantly in my head saying, do it, do it, do it, do it. Kill yourself, kill yourself, kill yourself. You know, it's insane, but it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've heard that so many times and it's so hard to fathom why a medication would conjure up that sort of motivation or willfulness. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a very uh, spiritual person, so I have my own ex explanations for that, which I've, I've definitely had experiences with that I know that there is darkness out there. And most of these people going through this are really good people. I mean, these, you're not abusing your drugs. You're not out there doing bad things. You're good people. You're just doing what your doctor told you to. And I really do believe that there, that these drugs make you more susceptible to that darkness, whatever it is. It opens you up wide to it and you just don't have that protection anymore from it. Right, yeah. So when did you decide to write a book? Because that's a huge endeavor. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I ever decided to do it. Uh, it just sort of happened. I, I, was, uh, pre I was asked to um, speak at the International Benzodiazepine Symposium. This was back in 2017 in Bend, Oregon. So this was a medical symposium for doctors to teach them about these drugs. Um, uh, no, I was at the symposium as part of like this patient panel to educate doctors about this and, and really give them that perspective. And I just, I honestly, I ran into some just really incredible people, medical providers, researchers, the person who really put this whole thing together, who was a, a benzo survivor herself. And uh, she approached me about writing a book. And I was like, uh, no, I've already got enough on my plate, thank you. <laughs> and, uh, but she kept, she was persistent. And finally I thought, you know what? This could be a really good tool to really get this message out there, to open up opportunities for me to speak to people and, and talk in, in ways that maybe I, I wouldn't normally have access to. So I decided to do it eventually. I got on top of it and uh, yeah, now it's it's coming out June 1st. Um, it's taken a while between, you know, taking care of kids and my own healing journey and just never having written a book before. But I, I'm really, um, I'm really proud of it. it. It's called Seeds of Hope, a journey through medication and madness toward meaning. So that really is my intention with it. That's what I ended up with. It was just wanting to give people hope who are in situations that just seem completely hopeless. You know, there's no way out of it or you're never going to get better. Yeah, well, you've certainly had that experience of coming from deep darkness and being quite ill. Uh, how was the challenge of finding a publisher for this book? Because I'm not sure that publishers would just want to lap this up right away. Well, it was actually the publisher who approached me about writing the memoir. Oh, really? <laughs> so that, that wasn't even, like I said, it just kind of fell into my lap. It was something that just happened. And she wanted it as part of a series of, of works of, uh, by uncommon voices, unique voices. And um, yeah, so. Wow. And what do you think the uh, pharmaceutical industry is going to say about your book? Because I'm sure that some journalists will want to get their side of the story. I mean, I, I don't know what journalists, you know, personal motivations are or would be uh, for something like this. Um, but the, I've definitely experienced either through the nonprofits I've worked with. I mean, I'm currently advising the, the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, and I still kind of work here and there with, with Benzo Info or Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. And there have been times where we, we have literally been just blackballed by social media, by Google, by Facebook, um, my YouTube channel. I mean, I've had so many of my videos flagged as inappropriate, which is hilarious. Like this one video I have that's for loved ones on how to be supportive is flagged as inappropriate. I mean, yes, obviously there are forces out there that do not want this message to get out there. And I understand that. 
But I think that there are far more people out there who recognize that there is something wrong. There is something wrong. Either they're, they're dealing with it themselves or they see a loved one going through it and they know it probably has something to do with the medications they're on. And there are so many people on these drugs right now. I mean, benzodiazepine prescribing has increased tenfold over the past decade or so. With the opiate thing, you know, with doctors being more careful not to prescribe opiates, they're just substituting with, them with benzos, um, which is not a great option. Wow. So if they've increased the prescription of these by 10 times in the last decade, that means the pharma, big pharma's profits increased by 10 times in the last decade. On oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And now with the, the whole COVID-19 thing going on, the prescription of anxiety meds has increased by 34% just in that first month, I think, right? So they're making a huge profit right now. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the other tragic part of this, other than the medications and what mm -hmm. they do and the withdrawal of trying to get off them, is that the medical system is not there to support folks. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm working to change with the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices. It's a, it's a doctor-focused group. So these are doctors who understand this researchers who are researching this, who want to do new research to present to the FDA to, to get them to change their recommendations, to re-educate medical providers about what these drugs actually do. And, and really medical providers don't know anything about these drugs because we didn't know anything about them when well, these things came out like 60 years ago before we even had the certain requirements that we have now. You know, so there's not much research, to be honest, that they have to fall back on. And a lot of that, again, it, you know, the stuff that the pharmaceutical companies put out does not warn you about everything these drugs can do. Right. Um, yeah. Well, Jocelyn, you are doing a great service uh, having getting that information out there. I hope your book is wildly popular and gets lots of coverage by mainstream media, even though we both know that might be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's really encouraging and inspiring to hear your story of being so sick and yet now you are so proactive to help other folks. And thank you for taking the time to share your story. Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm, I'm glad that you invited me and that we got to have this conversation. Me too. Thanks, Jocelyn. Well, a big thanks to Jocelyn for sharing her experiences with benzo withdrawal and for the healthcare system. And if you're struggling with withdrawal symptoms from benzodiazepines, check out Jocelyn's YouTube channel at Benzo Brains. If you need the support of a counselor for your own experience with medical error or for living with chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others.